Michael, for leading us in worship before the Lord. <clears throat> One of the most important, I think, things that we can learn in the Christian life is to give it to God. It's kind of a little bit cliche. We hear that. Uh, we say it maybe too often without thinking about what that means, but whatever it is, we give it to God. And um, if we have a problem in our life that comes up, we give it to God. If we have an opportunity that comes up in life, we give it to God. If you're concerned about your future, you give it to God. If you're distressed maybe about your past, you give it to God. If you have people in your life that God has placed there that you love and that you care for, you give them to God in prayer. If you have uh, blessings that the Lord has blessed you with, you give them to God and ask that he would use them for his glory. Everything that we have, everything that we own, everything that we're stewarding in this life, we give it to God. And he takes hold of that thing and uses it uh, when we offer it to him. And I think so often uh, when we try to clench things in our fists, when we try to hold things for ourselves, um, we often lose them anyways, or uh, we lose or miss opportunities to give those things to God and Him use them for His glory. And I think that's an important word that we need to hear as we approach the text that you just heard Michael read, um, because as we've been walking through Mark's gospel, we've seen the power of Jesus, we've seen His authority uh, numerous times, um, the amount of ability that He has just to speak and things happen like uh, storms on a sea, just go away. And so we see that authority, we see that power, and we can be tempted to think with that kind of power, with that kind of authority, then surely Jesus doesn't care or have time for me. Or maybe he has better things to be doing with his time, or he's too busy to be concerned with the little things of my life. Or, you know, maybe he even is a little bit standoffish because oftentimes people with a great authority and power can get that way, a little bit socially awkward. You don't uh, naturally have conversations with them because they don't know how to do that. And so it could be tempting for us to think with the kind of authority that we've seen in Christ as we've been walking through Mark's gospel that he could be like that. But I think what we see in the text this morning is he's absolutely not. Yes, he has all authority. He has all power, but he's compassionate and he's loving and he wants us to come to him and give him the things of our life as significant as jobs or family or homes or as insignificant as a decision we need to make tomorrow or something like that. He wants the cares and concerns of our life and of our day to day. And I think in the text we see that. We see that compassion in Christ. And so uh, what we have to realize, I think, church family, with these miracles and these accounts that we've seen of Jesus is that not only were the miracles themselves divinely orchestrated by God and a part of God's plan, but even the surrounding details of the text, the story, are part of God's plan. The setting, where it takes place, is part of God's plan. The participants, the ones who observe these miracles, are part of God's plan. The way, the method in which Jesus performs these miracles, they're all a part of God's orchestrated plan. And all of these details point to a spiritual truth in the text that may not at first be obvious. At first, we hear a text about uh, Jesus feeding 5,000, and we've heard this since we were you know, kids in Sunday school or in VBS. Mark's point is to demonstrate to us that Jesus has all authority. But when we begin to look at the details in this text, the, the surrounding details of the story, we see that he's not merely the healer of the afflicted, as we've seen in the past. He's not simply the one who can deliver the, the disciples when they're endangered in a boat on the sea and are about to be shipwrecked. He's the one who is not bound by the rules of, of normal life. He's not bound by the parameters set by 
laws of nature and physics. We see this in the text. And so this is, this is an incredible miracle. We don't want to minimize that. What Jesus does here in the text is incredible. Um, in fact, in this, this miracle of feeding the 5,000 is the only miracle other than the resurrection that shows up in all four Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have this account. John 6 and his uh, Gospel, John actually shows us that this miracle was so profound that it had such an impact on those that witnessed it that they actually tried to take Jesus by force and make him be their king. Uh, it had an incredible impact. It was an incredible miracle that Jesus performed. But there's more at work in the text than just the actual miracle of multiplying food and feeding a whole bunch of people. You see, this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 presents Jesus to us as the true and better Moses. And you're like, Matt, um, we just heard the text read and I didn't see anything about Moses so where are you getting this Moses business? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see the connection there. Well, several things. Look at, look at uh, the location where the miracle uh, is performed and the location where Moses and the Israelites were wandering. Both were in desolate places. Both were in deserted areas. Moses and the Israelites were in the wilderness in Exodus, Deuteronomy. Jesus, his disciples, these 5,000 people that are gathered are in a desolate place. It tells us that a couple times in the text, specifically in verse 32. Jesus, again, uh, refers to himself as the bread of heaven in John's account of this story in John 6. Again, that parallels to uh, the bread from heaven, manna, that Israel was being fed as they were in the wilderness. Um, the orderliness of the people as they're seated in these groups on the green grass in groups of hundreds and fifties, it brings to our minds the Mosaic camp in the wilderness. There's some intentional language here that's being uh, pointed out to us in the text where Jesus is demonstrating himself to be the true and better Moses. Again, the provision of food by Jesus has the same symbolic meaning as the provision of food with Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, that God, by his saving grace, is blessing his people, uh, even in bondage. And so this great miracle of feeding 5,000 people uh, demonstrates to us that the second, the true and better Moses, that's Jesus, meets the needs of his people. So a little bit of background in case you've not been with us through the study of Mark. Uh, Jesus has recently demonstrated his authority. We've seen that first in his teaching, that he teaches like uh, someone that they had never seen before. Then as we walk through Mark's gospel, uh, Mark begins to show us that not only his teaching shows us his authority, but actually his actions are showing us his authority as well, in that he has the authority over nature, that he can speak and storms obey, that he can speak and demons obey. Uh, he has authority over sickness, that with the touch of his garment, people can be healed. Uh, that he has authority over death, that he can raise uh, Jairus' daughter to life again after she's passed away uh, simply by taking her hand and, and talking to her. And so uh, Jesus, after showing this authority to his disciples, sends his 12 apostles out with that same authority to teach the same message, the message of Christ as being the Messiah, and perform these signs that accompany their teaching We've already touched verse 30 a couple weeks ago, but we'll mention it again because it's in our, in our text this morning. Uh, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And so we see this. He sends the apostles out. They're doing ministry. They're, they're healing. They're teaching. They're preaching. And they come back and report to Jesus all that they've said and all that they've done. But the report doesn't last too long because the disciples and Jesus are getting peopled to death. Uh, this is something that happens all the time in Mark. As we've been walking through Mark's gospel, uh, you see the crowds are just pressing in around them, pressuring them. You see it in Mark 1, uh, verse 37, verse 45, Mark 2, verse 2, 13, uh, Mark 3, verse 7 and 20, Mark 4, verse 2. 
Chapter 5, verse 21, 24, and 31. So numerous times in Mark's gospel, he's showing us that wherever Jesus shows up, his authority, his, uh, his miracle working ability, his teaching, all of that is gathering such a crowd that they're pressuring the disciples to the point that, again, the text has shown us now twice in Mark that they're not even able to eat. They're so busy, they're so pressured by the crowds that they're not even able to stop and take a lunch break. And so this is a wonderful experience. It's a draining experience for these men. They're exhausted. They've been doing ministry. They've been uh, traveling and preaching and teaching, and they're just flat exhausted, which leads to, I think, our first point in the text. Uh, Number one, our, our compassionate Christ provides rest for the weary. Our compassionate Christ provides rest for the weary. Look at verses 31 through 33 again. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. They needed some, they needed some time away. They needed some rest, some downtime, some R&R. And uh, Jesus notices this, and he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Take a load off. You need a break. God knows our limits. He knows that we can't be working all the time. He knows that we can't be working all the time, even if it's for his kingdom. Because that's what they had been doing. They had been preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel of who Jesus is with the people. And Jesus knew they needed a break. He recognizes that. And so they go to take a retreat on the other side of the lake. Now, there's some debate about where they're actually going for this retreat. Uh, Some scholars will say Bethsaida. But the problem is we don't know where Bethsaida is even today. And it's likely that there were a couple uh, villages or areas called Bethsaida. And so we're really not sure. But we think it's the other side of the Sea of, uh, of, the, of the Jordan River, where the Jordan River empties into the Sea of Galilee. They crossed over into some desolate area that hadn't been really inhabited, um, kind of a barren place. And so if, the, if this location is the right location, which it doesn't really matter for the, the significance of the text, um, that's where they're headed. And this journey is about four miles by boat from where they were across the Sea of Galilee, once they docked their boat, about an eight-mile journey by foot. So you can imagine, this is quite a retreat. I mean, they're going to get some rest, but they've got a journey there uh, a bit uh, first, and it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a short journey. And so what do we learn here? Well, I think, church family, for us, as we begin to ask the Spirit to apply this text to our hearts, we see it's not a sin uh, for them or for us to take a break, a rest, a sabbatical. In fact, for them, it would have been a sin not to because it's what Christ told them to do. The same is true for us this morning, church family. The greater the demands of our life, the greater the demands of our ministries, the greater the demands uh, of, of the things pressing in around us, the more that we need to take rest and time alone with Christ. It's a necessary part of our walk with him. Danny Aiken says this uh, in, in his commentary. We glean several insights here. Number one, there's a time to work and that there is no place for laziness in the Christian life. Number two, We should have periods of rest because Jesus tells us to. Being a workaholic is not spiritual and can actually be sinful. Number three, rest is best when accompanied both by solitude and companionship. Number four, rest is for a specific period of time. It's not permanent. And number five, even when resting, be prepared for ministry if necessary. A devoted follower of Christ is never off duty. That's what we see with these disciples. So let me ask you this morning, church family, how are we doing? How are we doing, Poplar Spring? If you remember going back uh, to our study in Deuteronomy, when we walked through the book of Deuteronomy together, we learned that Christ, that Jesus is our truest and deepest rest, that he is our Sabbath. 
You remember walking through that, understanding that, that Christ is the one in whom we find rest. That's been some time ago. And so let's use Mark chapter 6 this morning to be something of a progress report for us. How are we doing? Since the Lord showed us in Deuteronomy that he is our rest, that Christ is the one who gives us rest in him spiritually, we can rest in Christ from the busyness of life, from the demands of our jobs, the pressures of our families, all of those things, we are to rest in Christ. How are we doing? Are we finding rest in him, contentment in him, or are we, like the rest of the world, overwhelmed by just busyness? I think that's so often our default response. How are you, man? Ah, uh, man, just busy. Are we resting in Christ? He knows we need it. He provides rest for the weary. Look at verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So people see the sail in Jesus' boat go up. They see the anchor coming in, and they begin to go and try to head him off. And so they're, they're trying by foot to go to where Jesus is going to be next. And hundreds more from the lake shore as they're going to try to find out where Jesus is going to be uh, join in this band of people little fishing villages along the, the coast, and they try to head Jesus off. And by the time they get there, thousands are converging on this desolate place. And the text actually says that they beat Jesus and the disciples to the location. So, so much for their retreat, right? So much for their relaxation, their R&R, their downtime. Well, wrong. They would be served by Christ. They would be restored. They would be renewed by him. But it's going to be far different than they expected or imagined, which leads to our second point. Our compassionate Christ provides care for the shepherdless sheep. Our compassionate Christ provides care for shepherdless sheep. Look at verse 34. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The text says that he had compassion on them. And here in the Greek, the original language that this was written in, this word compassion is the idea, the, the intense word that means actually to be felt something to be felt in the pit of one's stomach and so when it says that Christ had compassion here the idea is that he felt toward them this deep very tender mercy and love and empathy this sympathetic empathy was so deep down in Christ that he felt it in his stomach he saw them and he saw the brokenness he saw their their lostness and he felt it they were sheep without a shepherd they were defenseless, lost, unable to provide for themselves, unable to take care of themselves. And you know, the language of Christ as our shepherd is not uh, unique to this passage. We find it throughout the Bible. Christ is the Lord who is my shepherd in Psalm 23. Jesus is the rejoicing shepherd who goes after even one lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. He's the good shepherd of John 10 who lays down his life for his sheep. He's the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, who honors his servants. He's the great shepherd of Hebrews 13. He's the shepherd lamb in Revelation 7 who guides us to living water. Christ is often pictured as our shepherd in the text of Scripture. And we, on the other hand, are the dumb sheep who can't even fend for ourselves. We can't save ourselves. And you know, it's not, it's not an accident that it uses Christ as shepherd and us as sheep. Have you ever thought about sheep and their own natural abilities? thought about a sheep and what what a sheep will do they don't have an offense except for maybe like bellowing for help or something in fact they, they 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 grow big puffy wool coats that can keep growing so long and so intense that it can actually impair their vision and mobility and so even their own natural ability to produce wool can be self-destructive 
Go and uh, Google, not now, because we wouldn't want to Google now, but uh, the sheep Shrek that went viral some time ago that got lost and shows up months or even maybe years, I don't remember how long, and it's just this big ball of wool. And it's surprising that it survived because its vision's impaired, its mobility's impaired. They're not the smartest or most cleverest of animals. Often wandering into trouble and they can't find their way home or can't get out of trouble by themselves. And so for these reasons, a sheep's survival depends upon another, a shepherd. And this is the picture of us in, in Christ, that he's our shepherd. And without him, we are lost, we are broken, we are defenseless, and even our own natural abilities are self-destructive. If left to ourselves, we will self-destruct. Dietrich Bonhoeffer understands this when he writes, There were questions, but no answers. These folks gathered on the shore. There were questions, but no answers. Distress, but no relief. Anguish of conscience, but no deliverance. Tears, but no consolation. Sins, but no forgiveness. That's what it means to be a sheep without a shepherd. You have these questions of, of worldview and questions of eternity, questions of your own sin and conviction, but you don't know what to do with it. And this is what Christ saw and he felt in his stomach, the sympathy and the empathy towards them. If you're not a Christian this morning, you may be wondering, well, what does God feel towards me? What does God feel towards me? Perhaps you think maybe God is mad at you. Or, or maybe that, that you feel that God delights in punishing you. That, that because of your sin, and you see your sin, and you're like, well, that even makes sense. I know how bad I am or how uh, the things I've done are wrong. And so God delights in punishing you. Or maybe you think that he doesn't even notice you at all. He does even, doesn't even recognize I exist. See the truth of his word today, friend. He has compassion on you. He sees you as a sheep in need of a savior. He feels in the deep down pit of his stomach a love and a compassion for you and the, the kind of desire that he has to shepherd and lead you. That's what Christ feels toward you. Notice that when, uh, when Jesus recognizes them as a sheep without shepherd, he, he, doesn't event, he eventually will meet their physical needs, but not immediately. He, he does feed them, and that's coming up in a bit. We're going to see that. But what he does first is profound. In verse 34, he began to teach them many things. He sees them as broken, as desolate, as, 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 as sheep in need of a shepherd, and he gives them the one thing that they truly need, more so than even having their bellies filled, which is coming. He gives them knowledge of who he is. He teaches them that he's the Messiah. He's the one that has come to take away sins because he knows their spiritual need is greater than their physical need. He gives them what they need. That leads to our third point. Our compassionate Christ provides for people's physical needs. Our compassionate Christ provides for people's physical needs. Look at verse 35 through 41. So again, Jesus is teaching. He's ministering. He's proclaiming the gospel. We've seen in Mark chapter 1 what he's proclaiming, that the kingdom of God has come near. The Messiah is among you. He's teaching that he is the Son of God. And all the while, the sun is setting over the Sea of Galilee. Slowly going down. And then in verse 35, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So it's getting late. The sun is setting, and the disciples are starting to get a little hungry. Their stomachs are growling. And so they think, and probably truthfully, that these other folks in this crowd, this crowd that has joined them and has been listening to Jesus' teaching, they're probably getting hungry too. And so they go to Jesus, they tell him, hey, we should probably split up and uh, go get some food. Because what we learn in the text is that no one this day packed a lunch, except for at least one guy. And so the disciples think, hey, uh, let's go find our own grub. And this is, this is truly, think about this, church family, this is where ministry and mission starts, even for us today. 
that Papua Spring, that we would look around us and see the needs of our community. If, if they're hungry, these folks around them have to be hungry. And so that's the logic. So we need to meet this need, Jesus. And I think for us, that we look around us and we see the needs of the people in our community, our, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our schools. And I think we ask God in times like this, God, would you open my eyes to see the needs of people around me? Maybe there are needs because I have needs. Maybe there are needs because I see it and, I, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm a witness to it. So the disciples are thinking, hey, these folks are probably hungry. Let's go and, uh, you know, go Dutch treat. That, that means like everybody pays their own way. They go get their food and we, we go and have a meal in the surrounding countryside. But Jesus has a better idea. Look at verse 37. He answered them, you give them something to eat. In the Greek here, the original language this was written in, the you and you go give them something to eat is emphatic. It's actually a, a shocking command. He would have said it, um, you know, maybe with a little bit of, uh, of tone in his voice. You go get them something to eat. And so you can imagine they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? We go get them something to eat? We can't do that. So verse 37, they come back to him and they say, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And their tone here is a bit disrespectful. In their minds, even if Jesus is their master, what he's asking of them is too much of them. Anyone here with, with fingers and toes can count and do some simple math and see that what Jesus is asking is too much. You see, they do the math. John's gospel tells us that it's actually Philip who gets out his beans and begins to count. 200 denarii worth of bread would have been about eight months worth of wages. We can't come up with that, Jesus. Are you, are you crazy? We can't, we can't come up with that kind of money. And even if we could come up with that kind of money, think about this. We're in a desolate place. Where are we going to find that kind of bread? In a desolate place, you can't just go to the local Walmart and pick up some loaves of bread. Uh, R.T. France, in his commentary, calculates that 200 denarii worth of bread, which is their question, would have purchased 2,400 loaves of bread. I mean, you think about it, even in our culture, in our day and age, where we do have supermarkets you go to the local supermarket and tell them you want 2,400 loaves of bread, they're going to laugh at you. And so their, their, their concern here is legitimate. There's a lot of bread to be made, and we're in a desolate place. How are we going to come up with that? They were worried about raising these objections instead of walking in obedience to what Christ commanded them. So Jesus has made it clear that they're providing dinner. They're not going to be buying it, so that's strike one. They're not going to go buy 200 denarii worth of bread. So verse 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And so they, they come back to Jesus. They report that they essentially have uh, five biscuits and a couple of sardines, uh, appropriate snack for one person. Again, in John's gospel, and I know I keep referring back to John's gospel. John gives us a few more details. So that's why we're drawing in his version of the story this morning at several points. John's gospel informs us that this is a young boy that they find the meal with. And so essentially, the disciples come back to Jesus with the lunch that a mother would have packed for her young child. This is strike two. It's clear at this point in the text, at least to the disciples, that this was an impossible situation. If left up to them, they don't have enough money. And even if they did, they couldn't go buy the bread. And this young boy and his little snack is all that they've found. And so what are they going to do? They don't have enough to feed this crowd. And yet Jesus has told them that they're responsible for it. They're going to feed them. And so the true and better Moses, Jesus, the good shepherd, provides for his children in the wilderness. Look at verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. 
And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And it divided the two fish among them all. Jesus' command here that they sit down in groups on the grass is intentional. Again, it reminds us, it points us back to Moses and the division of the camps in the wilderness as Israel was making its way into the promised land. That's some intentional language there. Jesus blesses the the very small offering of food, likely a traditional Jewish blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. We don't know that's what he said, but he gives this blessing, and then he gives the food to the disciples and disperses it among the whole crowd. And and the word gave there in the text, in the imperfect tense in the Greek. And now I'm not great even at English grammar, but what they tell me is that in the Greek grammar, the imperfect tense, the idea is that he just kept giving it. That word gave, it just means that he gave and he gave and he gave and it just kept multiplying. And so again, that brings our minds back to the Old Testament. When Elisha, the prophet, performs this miracle for the widow in 1 Kings chapter 17. You remember the widow is there and uh, her flower from her flower pot It just keeps multiplying. It keeps producing. And here, what an incredible scene this must have been. That nothing is impossible for God. That with the blessing of Christ, this miracle is performed and they keep handing out this food. We learn that Christ is compassionate toward the needy. He cared for their physical needs. He wasn't just going to send them out into the countryside to fend for themselves. That someone might possibly still go hungry. He's going to meet their need. And so we see that. Christ is compassionate toward the needy. But think of this church family. What does our cooperation in Christ's compassion look like toward our neighbor? I think we see this in the text. John's gospel tells us that Andrew was actually the disciple that was out checking to see if folks had brought any food of their own. Finds a boy, again, a young boy that was willing to give his lunch to Christ. And so this account, and John gives us further insights into how we participate in God's mission. We share in Christ's compassion towards people in need. I think first of all, we see and we understand that God wants to use us in bringing the bread of life to a needy world. He could do just fine without us, but he chose to use us. He didn't need this young boy's lunch. He didn't need what this little boy provided in that lunch box. He didn't need the disciples to distribute the meal. He could have done, he could have done it any way he wanted. He could, have, he could have made food out of thin air and had it like float down to the people on the backs of hummingbirds if he would have wanted to. Jesus could have done it any way he wanted to. He's the God who creates uh, ex nihilo out of nothing. He speaks and things come into existence. He, he could have done it however he wanted to, but he chose to use this young boy's meal. He chose to use his disciples to distribute it. He delighted in using them. He delighted in using what they had. He delights in using us for his work in this world. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. What an incredible blessing. Think about that, church family, that the God of the universe, the one who created all things, delights in using me and you. That's incredible. I think the second thing we learn is that he can use small things from people who are committed to him. There's nothing extravagant about this gift that the boy offers, his lunch that day. There's nothing extravagant about what the disciples were able to do, but Christ used them in the same way. You may look at your life and you say, well, I don't have a particular set of gifts or talents like, you know, so-and-so in the church. I don't, I don't know how God would want to use me. Are you available? That's enough. Are you available? He's called you and he delights in using you. And what you may consider small may be exactly what he wants to use. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why do we have it in jars of clay? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God uses common old clay jars, that's me and you, 
So there will be no mistake that the power that is at work in this world is coming from him. So when we think about our calling, when we think about our gifts, when we think about what God's called us to do, what our ministries are on this earth, I think so often we think, what are, what are our talents? What are the ways that he's gifted me? What are the things I'm good at? What are the things that, that I would consider my strengths? I think so often, though, we need to be asking, what are our barley loaves? What are our ordinarinesses? I think I just made up a word and a half there. In what ways are we ordinary? What ways are we like everyone else? And what, what are our weaknesses? Because it's probably those things that Jesus wants to use. So often we ask what our strengths, what, let's ask what our weaknesses are so that the power of Christ may be magnified. It's difficult often to give these things to Christ because we're insecure about them. We don't want to show what our weaknesses are. But so often Christ wants to use those things, our brokenness, our weaknesses, our ordinariness, because it magnifies him. Elizabeth Elliot, she said this, If the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am will be refused on the part of Christ, I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus the loaves and the two fish. With the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is, he the use he makes of it is his blessing. It magnifies him. And so we learn that even the things that we might consider little, the things that we might consider weaknesses, Christ wants to use for his glory. And then I think lastly, we learn that Jesus works when and only when the loaves were put into his hands in willing sacrifice. When it was brought to him and, and laid at his feet, he takes it and he uses it and he blesses these folks that day. We're required to bring to Christ what we have. Will you bring to him your time, your talent, and your treasure? Will you bring him yourself and let him use you for his glory? So far, we've seen that our compassionate Christ provides rest for the weary. Our compassionate Christ provides care for shepherdless sheep. Our compassionate Christ provides for people's physical needs, and he uses us in that process. Now, as we conclude in this passage, look at point number four. Our compassionate Christ provides an abundance for those that come to him. Our compassionate Christ provides an abundance for those that come to him. Verses 42 through 44. Look at verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. In that very short verse, we get to see the miracle at work here in the text. Everything to this point in the text is just a prelude to this sentence. Everything that we've read so far is just an introduction to verse 42. And they ate and they were all satisfied. How the bread and the fish multiplied, we don't really know. We don't, we don't know how it came about. We're not told how Jesus did it or what it looked like. But I do know one thing, that once I get to heaven, I want to go fishing with Jesus, right? Because the, the Bible says there's a sea up there in heaven, and a crystal sea, and I'm, I'm sure it's got some bass in it. And when Jesus shows up, the fish just start multiplying. So I'm going fishing with Jesus when I get to heaven. That's terrible theology. But we don't know. The point is the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us if it just appears out of thin air. It doesn't tell us if it just keeps multiplying, he keeps grabbing one out of the basket, and there's always another one waiting on him. It doesn't tell us how it happened. But the point is this, friends. When Jesus throws a dinner party, the guests leave satisfied and full. The guests leave completely full. When he provides dinner, he is totally and completely satisfying. 
We see, again, this word here in the Greek for filled up or satisfied. Uh, It's pretty good in your ESV, the way they translate it, or NIV or whatever translation you have this morning. But looking at the original Greek, I found that it was actually better translated Matt James at Thanksgiving dinner. That's what that word means there in the Greek. Completely full. Like you've had so much, you need somebody to roll you away from the table. And that's actually what Jesus is talking about here in the Greek. They left that full. And so full that the text actually says there's leftovers. Now that's satisfying, but not nearly satisfying is what Christ is in our lives spiritually. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 says this, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians 2 verse 9 and 10, for in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head and all of all and the ruler of all authority. Friends, that is satisfying. More satisfying than any meal could ever be. The satisfaction that we have in being filled with Christ spiritually is more satisfying. It's interesting to note here. Again, this is just, again, these interesting details that not only the miracle at work in the text, but the surrounding details of the text as well. John's account of this miracle tells us that, this, that Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That At the time that Jesus fed the 5,000, it's, it's right before Passover. Now remember, again, got to use our memories, and I'm, I'm really forgetful, so I, I don't blame you if you can't do this memory thing very well either. But if you go back to our study in Exodus and Deuteronomy, as we were walking through those books as a church in the Old Testament, you remember God provides miraculously uh, for Israel by blessing them with manna, or bread from heaven. And, and he's, he's doing that the whole time they're in the wilderness. As they're traveling to the promised land, he's giving them bread from heaven. We've mentioned that even a couple times this morning. But do you remember when it stopped? Do you remember when God cut off the bread from heaven, if you will? It was Joshua chapter 5. In Joshua chapter 5, we've not studied that as a church yet, but if you've read through that book, you see what's going on in Joshua chapter 5. The Israelites have entered into the promised land. They've crossed over the Jordan. They're now in the land that God had promised them, and they're celebrating their first Passover as residents of the promised land. Now, that's significant because just after Israel crosses over into the promised land, they celebrate their first Passover, and the bread stops. And now in our text this morning, just before the celebration of Passover, the bread of heaven, Jesus, is there with them in person, and he miraculously provides them with bread. The bread happens to come again. I think this is one of the things that Jesus has in mind as he's he's working this miracle, the symbolism here at work in the text, that Jesus, the bread of heaven, has come, and he's with them in person. He will give his life for them, and the bread of heaven has returned. And he's symbolizing that as Bread is literally being multiplied before them to feed them. Verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, following this meal, the leftovers are all gathered up. And the text tells us there are five, or 12 small baskets. I think that's probably significant because there's 12 apostles. And they probably each remembered, well, hey, we all had baskets, so there were 12. Um, not important necessarily theologically for our text, but as they, as they walk through and they're picking up all the leftovers, 12 baskets. This is way more than they had in the beginning when the little boy brought his lunch forth and they used what he had. And you can just imagine as this little boy goes home, right? And he walks to the door and mom's like, Yosef, come over here. I want to check your lunchbox, see what you ate today at lunch. See if you ate all your, what? <laughs> That's like groceries for a month. You know, Jesus has multiplied it. And what they had left over was more than he even started with. 
And so where we see a lack, God provides an abundance. Where we see human problems, God says, uh, I can accomplish my divine purposes just fine right there. I don't need to worry about your human problems. The old hymn, little as much when God is in it, is absolutely true. And we see that in the text. And then the text says this, those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. I think a lot of preachers and teachers make a big deal out of the number here. And you've probably heard this too if you've grown up in church or if you've been around church or any, any amount of time. Well, 5,000 men means that they counted just the men and there were women and kids there too. You have to assume there were women and kids there. So it means there were probably fifteen to 20,000 people there. Well, maybe that could be true. Or maybe, as the text says, it was just an all-male event. The Bible does say those who ate were 5,000 men. I don't know. John's gospel tells us, again, at the conclusion of this event, they tried to seize him. They tried to capture Jesus and force him to be king so that they could overthrow Rome. So maybe, just maybe, that there were only men at this dinner event because that type of military seizing of Jesus would have been something that they wouldn't have wanted their wives and kids to be a part of. I don't know. The point is, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe there were 20,000 people there because you do add up women and kids. Or maybe there were only men there, so it was closer to 5,000. Either way, that's not the point. The point is that Jesus is the hero of the text. He's the rescuer. He's the one that miraculously showed up and provides food for them and, and met their physical needs and taught them that he was the Messiah, so he met their spiritual needs. And that's the point of the text. And the number, whether it's 20,000 or 5,000, doesn't diminish the miracle itself. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the uh, children's Bible, if you were at the candlelight service on Christmas Eve, I read this quote, but I think, it, I think it's incredibly helpful here. Uh, in the children's Bible, we, we use with Desmond uh, to walk through the story of the Bible. She says this, the Bible's not a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. You see, the best thing about this story is that it's true. And there are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories in the Bible are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Jesus' love is put on display here. His compassion is put on display here as he comes to the rescue in a desolate place. In a deserted place, he provides them what they needed. They needed food. They needed knowledge of a Savior. But friends, Jesus shows his love to us even more so when he comes to our rescue in another desolate and lonely place, a hill called Calvary where he would give his life, where he is the hero that would hang on a cross so that we could have our sins forgiven. He's the rescuer. He's the shepherd for shepherdless sheep. He's our savior. Charles Spurgeon says this, Come then, weary, hungry sinner. You have nothing to do but take Christ. Open your mouth and receive the food. Faith to receive what Christ provides is all that is needed. Would you put your faith in him today? Would you trust him today to be the one who can meet your needs? Not just your physical needs, but your most desperate and pressing need, the need for a savior, to have your sins forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you in your scriptures teach us who you are. We thank you that you teach us of our great need, the need to have our sins forgiven. We thank you, Jesus, that you came and you died on a cross so we could have our sins forgiven. Help us this morning to see ourselves in this text as those that are like sheep without a shepherd and to know of our need for you. Father, for those of us this morning that have placed our faith and trust in Christ and you are our shepherd, God, help us to respond with compassion to those around us as you did. 
Help us to sense that need deep down in the pit of our stomach as well and have empathy on our neighbors who may be like sheep without a shepherd. Father, we give you this time and we pray that you would use the word this morning, that as we respond, you would transform us to look more like Christ, help us to live lives that honor you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.